Welcome to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. This is Diane Estabrook, staff writer for McKnight's Home Care Daily Pulse. These could be the best of times and the worst of times for home care. On the one hand, more care is moving into the home. On the other, the industry is facing staffing challenges and rate cuts at the state and federal levels. Jennifer Sheets, president and CEO of home health firm Interim Healthcare, says those two challenges are linked. And as the new board chair of the Research Institute for Home Care, she will fight for better Medicare and Medicaid rates to attract more caregivers to the industry. I started my conversation by asking her to explain what the nonprofit institute also does. It really funds and promotes research to inform policy and identify best practice, patient care models, any disparities that are out there in care delivery service. It partners and collaborates on research and education programs with other organizations in healthcare, not all in home care, in all healthcare, to promote and advance the quality and innovation that's needed in our care delivery model. I think one thing that's important to point out is that it's the only foundation solely dedicated to building evidence base for home health care. There's so much research that goes into all the other areas of care, right, whether it's infusion or hospitals and, and those settings. And there's not a lot of evidence-based research specific to the home health care industry. And that really sets it apart. What do you see today as the biggest challenge facing home care or home health care? Is it staffing? Or is it something else? Um, well, so without a doubt, staffing is absolutely the biggest challenge that we face in home health care right now. Um, we absolutely do not have a demand issue for home health care services. We have a supply issue. Um, meeting the demand is directly dependent on our ability to hire qualified professionals to fill positions. And really, that's so that we can continue providing the services to an increasing number of individuals who need it. Um, just to give you a couple of stats, between 2018 and 2022, 44% of beneficiaries had their home health care needs turned away, with the primary reason being staffing shortages. Hospital patients ready for discharge um, that have been referred to the home um, are seeing delays because more home health agencies are turning down more referrals due to staffing constraints. Um, and in part, unfortunately, that's brought about by the other big challenge in our industry, which is continued rate cuts, you know, at the CMS federal level. So, you know, the success of ongoing recruitment efforts really stems from decisions around funding at the federal and the state level. Home health stakeholders have been working for better reimbursements for decades, but unfortunately, <laughs> this debate still persists today. And the reality is the bare minimum of funding um, which the home health care industry receives really undervalues the superior health outcomes that we see in the home, and it perpetuates low wages for our workers. And the reality is the outcomes are the best in the home. It's where people overwhelmingly want to be. In the midst of this crazy thing we just came through, you know, called COVID-19, it's also where transmissions most minimized, and we should be pushing more and more resources to the home to keep people happy and healthy and independent as long as possible. So rate cuts, staffing shortages, all of this impacts our ability to recruit and retain qualified caregivers and reach all of the individuals who want and need and deserve, quite frankly, uh, care in the home. 
And I'll give you just a couple other stats if you'd like them that I, I, I keep in the forefront of my mind because I talk about this a lot, but the average home health care patient per clinician has moved from about six um, to over eight between 2018 and 2022. So nurses, and, and remember in home health care, we don't see them all in a, in a little row, you know, like if you're in an institute. So they're seeing eight patients, um, you know, on average uh, every day, and that's a lot. Care providers and clinicians are compelled to lower the number of visits per episode um, just to try to continue to have reach and get people the services that they need. So we're really working as an industry on making sure that decision makers understand how important it is that, again, we push for care early, care in the home that keeps people focused on being independent, staying out of hospitals. The Biden administration rolled out this executive order that highlights home and community-based services, not necessarily health care, but home and community-based services. Um, what is your take on that? And there was really no additional funding behind that. Are you encouraged by that or were you disappointed? Um, initially, I would say I was encouraged that we got recognition of the value that we provide and certainly a, a definition of what home and community-based services um, are, because that has never really been clearly defined before. I think the unfortunate part is there's no action behind the comments. And actually what we're seeing is, as an industry, um, honestly, it feels like we're just taking, you know, punch after punch um, when it comes to decisions that are being made. So um, I'll just give you a couple of, of examples. But you know, we are right now facing the largest proposed or final and proposed cuts to the services that we provide. Um, we're talking about an 8% reduction in reimbursement, which is literally billions of dollars carved out of the Medicare, for example, benefit to life-saving clinical care in the home every single year. Um, so it is it, in, it was encouraging that we felt like people were recognizing it, but I think, you know, you need to understand that it has been an uphill battle for years, and unfortunately, we're seeing cut after cut after cut, where um, it's just going to make it even more challenging to meet the needs in, in the home. But, um, again, we're looking at billions of cuts there. We're looking at, unfortunately, the people that will be most impacted are those rural um, remote areas that are already underserved populations, but when you think about less people, the ability, um, the lack of the ability to pay rates that clinicians deserve, um, you're going to have to really, as a company, strategically think about where your patient population is, and and that means if if you can see more patients, but because they all live on the block versus an hour and a half one-way drive time, those are the decisions that we're being forced to make, and and honestly, cuts of the magnitude that we're facing will threaten the ability of three and a half million Medicare beneficiaries um, every single day to be able to, to access the care they deserve. So so how do you move the needle on that? Is it, is it going to have to come from Congress or would it come from, from the payer side? Because we're seeing, um, you know, a lot of payers, these big health insurance companies, uh, Medicare Advantage plans that are embracing value-based care, which is kind of moving care into the home. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a great question. I would say um, there definitely has to be action by Congress. I think CMS um, has gotten to the point where they are greatly overstepping their scope of authority and really rebasing rates 
and the only the only um, area that can rebase rates is Congress. And so I think Congress is going to have to get involved. They're going to have to take a stand there. We need that. On the payer side, we are certainly all working together um, to really make sure that all the decision makers understand uh, the value that we bring and what these cuts actually, you know, actually mean um, to the industry. So um, I will say current state, we have seen the industry come together in a way that we never have before. We've spent a lot of time educating folks on the Hill. We've, been, we've spent a lot of time with CMS. We've spent a lot of time with the current administration and the White House. Um, and again, I think it's making sure people understand that, that these cuts really equate to $18 billion over the next 10 years, <clears throat> which is even more than they originally proposed. Um, it's, it's really estimated that more than half of Medicare certified home health agencies are gonna be operating with negative margins. And as a result, we're gonna see locations closing. Um, and, and the reality is unfortunately CMS finalized these cuts last year and they've got more coming in 2024, despite strong opposition from patients, from providers, from lawmakers, from hospital associations. It just, they moved forward with it anyway. And, um, you know, so I think it's gonna take an all hands on deck effort. We've introduced legislation to try to stop the cuts to say, let's come to the table, let's talk about how we can drive better value. But you can't be talking about value-based care on one side um, and say, hey, we want, value-based care in every state by 2023, and that has to include home care, and they play a big role, when out of the other side of the, your mouth, you're saying, but I'm going to take away, I'm going to take away your funding, so you can't provide more care. And so, you know, I feel like it, it really has to be a collective effort, sitting down at the table, you know, legislators with CMS, with providers, with payers to say, what's the answer here? And when you look at things like Medicare Advantage, for example, you know, there has to be some regulation around what percentage of their funding goes to the bedside, right? It, and that's the piece that I think there, there also needs to be clarity around. But, you know, the reality, again, is that home, home health care is becoming more personalized, more innovative, um, ultimately delivering extremely good outcomes compared to other services. And the more that we can educate on the benefits of these services, the better care that seniors and other individuals will receive. Um, you know, again, the pandemic was the proving ground to the broader healthcare industry um, of the high quality cost-effective care that home health can provide. And it's time that the decision makers recognize and support this as well. When you think about influence, um, influence in Congress and influence in D.C., CVS Health, which is obviously pushing more care into the home, released a report recently that said the U.S. healthcare system needs a reset and needs to move more care into the home because of the aging population. How significantly, how significant do you think a report like that coming from a company, a huge company like CVS Health, is for the industry, and how would do you think that might resonate in Washington? Yeah, again, it's a great question. It is, uh, it is phenomenal information. It's been validating what we've been saying, uh, you know, for, for a long time from our seat. I think, again, it should impact the challenges that we've done a lot of similar research. You know, we've been able to show by partnering with folks like AARP, you know, that overwhelmingly, you know, 93% of people would choose to receive care, even high acuity care in the home versus an institution. We've been able to show the 
increase in the population that's coming our way that is going to need our services. Um, we've been able to demonstrate, for example, home health care cost to the healthcare delivery system is 140th, 140th the cost of being in a, a, a hospital um, for, the, for the same level of services. If you're receiving the same level of services in home versus in the hospital, it's 140th the cost. I think one of the reasons that the Research Institute exists is to help fund more research exactly like you're talking about. So we've, we've looked at things like disparities in home health care, the value and the role of home health care and what it should play in Medicare Advantage. We publish an annual chart book that highlights trends that we're seeing with patient population and, and needs. Um, we've launched a grant, which is new. We're calling it the Research Institute for Home Care Grant. And it's the only grant that's dedicated solely to the betterment and understanding of care of the home. So the fact that CBS Health has published something is huge, and we want to see more and more of that. My concern is that we have people, um, decision makers, looking in silos, right? I'm going to look at this one benefit. Okay, this one looks like it's grown too fast, so let's, let's stifle that growth. When you want to say, hey, step back, reset, exactly the right word, reset, look at the healthcare dollar, and how do we make that dollar go as far as it can? And we make that dollar go as far as it can by pushing more and more home or more and more care to the lowest cost, highest quality setting. And that's the message that needs to be out there. But we've got to get everybody at the table and not looking in little silos here and there. And, and our reimbursement right now in healthcare, which is probably exactly why you know people say it, it needs to be completely reset, it actually incentivizes siloed thinking, right? The reimbursement for hospitals is one way, and then skilled nursing facilities the other, acute rehabs is the other, home health the other, and it it incentivizes us to be siloed versus patient-centered, coordinated care um, that, again, gives the best outcome for the lowest healthcare spend. We've been seeing a lot of consolidation in the industry. You've got some larger firms that have scale that are making it easier to attract workers. They're easier, you know, it's easier for them to offer higher wages and benefits and negotiate with health systems, MA plans. How do you see this industry evolving? Um, and is there going to be a place for some of these smaller pay players, uh, you know, the small mom and pops, so to speak? Yeah, I think that's going to be so dependent on everything we've been talking about with the funding. I do believe we're going to continue to see consolidation in this space because when you think about these cuts that um, are crippling, uh, and there's no better way to say it, if you're a larger organization, you can try to diversify a little more, lean on other service lines. Um, to make it the difference. But the, the small players, I think, need to play and should play absolutely a critical role um, in care delivery because the reality is no matter how big the organization is, healthcare is a local thing. Um, one of the reasons that at Interim Healthcare, we have, we have two sides of the business, right? We have our, um, our franchisees and then we have company owned. And one of the things that I, I love is that because they're, we have franchisees, they are in their community. It, it is a small business. It's locally owned, locally operated. We call it locally loved. Um, and the reason we say that is because their community, right, is holding folks accountable. You're going to see these people at the grocery store or at the ball field or at your place of worship. And you want to be proud of the impact you're having 
in the patients and families' lives in your community. So I think it's important that small players are given a path to succeed and to continue to grow. Unfortunately, I think the path that we're on right now is just going to continue to put some extreme pressures on exactly that population of business owners. And there's a lot of private equity money coming into this industry. Are you concerned about that? So um, I will say there's there's uh, a difference among private equity partners, for sure. I think early on, probably, you know, last 10 years, we saw a lot of folks entering into this space because um, they saw it as a need and they saw it as an area that was going to be growing. I think what we see now in our private equity partners overwhelmingly is that they understand that this is not the kind of business that, that can do a short-term look or a short-term strategy. So you see PE partners coming in wanting to talk about quality and compliance first, realizing that that's ultimately what's going to drive the growth. And, you know, the reality is I say this, I'll actually just spoke about this yesterday, which is kind of funny, but I say all the time, you know, when you think about sound clinical judgment, when you think about evidence-based research, best practice, the reality is that drives shareholder value in the same way it drives patient outcomes. And I think um, private equity partners are realizing that. I think the extreme positive of private equity um, recognizing the value of our space is that by partnering with someone like a private equity company, you then have the resources to to invest in forward-looking innovation, new programs, ways to respond to the challenges that we're seeing. So I see it as an overwhelmingly um, positive trend so long as the private equity companies are like the ones that we partner with, which really focus on quality compliance first, knowing that that's going to drive the, the ultimate business results. We hear a lot today, too, about family caregivers and the roles that they play. Um, how can the industry leverage those people or how should they, I guess, be leveraging family caregivers? Yeah, again, great question. Healthcare, especially home health care, is a collective effort, and the family plays an integral role in caring for loved ones. Um, education is key in these situations. It can be really scary to shoulder the responsibility, um, especially if it's a new diagnosis. I, I will tell you personally, uh, my mother receives care in the home, um, and when she came home after a, a life-altering surgery, she said to me, how do people cope when they don't have a resource, you know, like you in their home? And she's right. So the reality is we need a lot more education. And whether you're caring for an aging parent or someone with heart failure or can, you know, COPD or dementia or diabetes, it's important to research what it means to be a caregiver um, for your loved one's particular condition. And that's where I think home health care companies have to step up to the plate to help educate um, those full-time caregivers. They all, all of these diagnoses require, you know, special tools to care for their loved one properly. And, you know, there's a, there's a wealth of resources out there, but it can be overwhelming. And I think home health care agencies have to be um, more focused on including the family in the care and in the care plan, including education. Um, one thing I think that is important for um, us to all recognize is that being a personal caregiver is physically and emotionally taxing. It can be helpful, you know, for folks to seek help um, in the form of in-home services, obviously, to alleviate their own burden, but also to provide information and tips and the emotional support to keep families involved, build confidence, 
um, and, and relieve stress. One of the things that I will tell you that, that we did um, is we developed a new philosophy of care about five years ago that really focuses on whole person care approach and everything that impacts a person's ability to heal. So obviously that physical care that, that others provide that is really rooted in best practice standards of care, but then we added four pillars and we call it mind, body, spirit, and family. It's part of what we call home life enrichment. But the reality is we try to put ourselves in the shoes of each one of the clients by creating a holistic individualized plan that brings them and their loved ones um, a more empowered and enriched life. And you can't look at someone's physical diagnosis without taking into account what's the family going through? Do they know, for example, what it means that what's the difference if your loved one's in dementia, you know, stage one or in stage dementia? You know, and, and we do things like, in that example, I'll say, like, if your loved one's in dementia stage one and they're confused, you reorient them to person, place, and time, right? If your loved one is in end-stage dementia and they're living in the 1950s, then party like it's the 1950s because you're going to frustrate yourself and them and you can't reorient them at this point. So those little tips are such a relief to family members to understand you know, what their role is. You can't fix everything and understanding, you know, what you're going to, what you're going to see is important. And then we also, as a part of that thinking, look at what other resources do they need, right? Do we need to layer in Meals on Wheels, for example? Is there, is there no one there to be able to provide the nutrition that this patient needs for healing? Do we need to layer in um, additional resources like transportation? How does this person get to their, you know, wound center appointment, for example? So I think, what we have to do is recognize that it is a, it's a collective effort, recognize that there are a ton of resources that unless you're in healthcare, healthcare is extremely overwhelming. And so as much as we can do to, um, to, to really allow bite-sized pieces specific to a patient's individualized situation, I think the better service we provide. I think the advice I would give to new family caregivers, and again, I've, I've been there, I'm there right now, um, is really take it one day at a time or even a minute at a time. Um, and I think it's really important that they understand they're not alone. Uh, they should allow themselves to use the resources that are available to them. And, um, and, and most importantly, give themselves credit that their loved one is very lucky to have someone in their life that can be a full-time caregiver. There's a lot of people that don't have that luxury. Great. Jennifer Sheets, good luck on your new role. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in home care news, visit McKnight'sHomeCare.com.